We've done a lot of singing this morning about the glory of the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. You learned a song that might have been new to you. You have also heard some songs that are very familiar. And I want to draw your attention to just one more song by way of introduction this morning, and that is in the book of Revelation. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen as I read it. It's in Revelation chapter 5. And this is a glimpse at this point in the apocalypse of what is going on in the very throne room of God. It's a window into the glories of heaven, as it were, where God himself dwells. And in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, there is a song that is being sung, a song that's directed to the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ. And this is the song, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It is with that song ringing in our ears, it's with that vision of the glory of the risen Christ that I would invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, going to be reading from verses 29 down through the end of the chapter in verse 40. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 29 through verse 40. This is the word of the Lord. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. For through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the fire, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that Apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's Word. For several weeks now, we've been in the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 11 in particular. 
And at the very beginning of the chapter, we received a definition of what faith is, and then the author went on to give many descriptions of how that faith looked in the lives of individuals. And we're now at a particular point in the chapter where the author is bringing his argument really to a climax. He, he's using a, a rhetorical approach. He's trying to bring the people to an understanding of the greatness of these examples, but not because of who they were as individuals in terms of their morality, but who they were as people who had put their faith in Christ. And so, this morning, what we're going to look at is the way that the very royal kingship of Jesus, this one who sits on the throne and rules over the universe, how his kingdom, his rule is seen over three areas in the remaining part of this chapter. We're going to see it over what is political, over what is personal, and over what is promised. Over what is political, over what is personal, and what is promise. Now, I want you to notice here right at the very beginning that he dives in with these two examples, two particular nations where the power of God and his rule and reign is seen in the way that he toppled them. Uh, the first one, of course, is Egypt. And now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that it begins really with the people of Israel as slaves in Egypt. That after the patriarch period, after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, and he takes the people in to Egypt to actually rescue them from the famine, the Egyptians turn against them. And they begin abusing the people, and they begin making them slaves, and they are brutal masters. And so God sends Moses, who had already been 40 years in the wilderness, being humbled and trained by God, but as an 80-year-old man comes back and with the help of his older brother Aaron, leads the people out. And it's not enough just to do the miracles where he brings them out of Egypt, but he brings them right up until the very threshold of the Red Sea, uh, something that seems impossible to cross. And the people begin to complain against Moses. They say, why have you brought us out here to die? Because Pharaoh and his army are behind us and they're pursuing us. And we've got the Egyptian army behind and the sea in front of us and we're stuck in the middle and there's nothing for us to do. And Moses cries out to God for help. And God says, I want you to make your way into that Red Sea, and as you do, it will open. They begin to do that, and sure enough, God, faithful to his word, opens up that Red Sea. And as the text says, the people are able to walk through the Red Sea on dry land. And they get to the other side, and they turn around, and they see the Egyptian army pursuing them, trying to do the same thing. And because God who rules the universe also rules the world and all that is in it and all of the natural phenomenon causes those walls of water to come down and collapse in upon the Egyptian army and wipes them out. You see, what God's doing there is he is showing his absolute power over all political and religious nations. There was never really a time in history where a nation was not religious where a nation did not have some gods that it would serve. And so the first 10 plagues in Egypt was a wholesale assault on the pantheon of Egyptian gods. Each one of those 10 plagues showed God's power, Yahweh's power over the power of the Egyptian gods. And then finally, the Egyptian army, this crown jewel of everything the Egyptians had national pride in was taken out into the Red Sea and drowned. You see, he is showing his power, his authority, his reign over the nations. And then another example is given in that of Jericho. 
Most of you know the story of Jericho because maybe you grew up in Sunday school and you had the whole flannel graph Sunday school where you saw the people of Israel marching around the city seven times. They blow their trumpets and the walls fall down. Now, that is true, however, but what you need to understand is that Jericho was a city that in those days was viewed as almost impossible to defeat under any circumstances. It was known to be one of the oldest cities in the world. In fact, even today, archaeologists are continue to be amazed at what they find layer after layer after layer of this city. But it was also the first city, we believe, in the known world to have walls around it. Most of the time when you built a city, you just found the high point, and that was how you defended it. But because Jericho was built around a freshwater spring, they wanted to keep the city down there where they had access to the water, and so to provide protection, they built a wall around it. And then, to add an extra layer of security, they actually built a second wall, too. It was a double-walled city. And somebody within that city received the spies when they came to check out the land. And her name was Rahab. And you know Rahab because she features prominently in this story in Joshua chapter 2. She is the one who receives these spies and, and brings them up to the rooftop of where she was living. And because it was harvest season, there was lots of uh, cut grain up there and stalks of grain, and she hides them up there. And before long, word gets out that there were spies in the land, and those people who were responsible for finding such spies were going around house to house. In fact, the text tells us that the king himself sends somebody to Rahab. Rahab was known, maybe even known to the king. The text says she was a prostitute, a little bit different than what you might be thinking in today's context. She was probably a, a priestess, probably a religious prostitute. Uh, we know from later on in the story that she had a father and a mother and brothers and sisters. She had a whole family. She was a respected person in the community. And, she sent, and people are sent to her house to see where, where these spies were because they were told they were there, and she, she lies to them. She says, no, they've, they've gone on. In fact, they've, they've left out of that second gate. If you pursue them fast, you might be able to catch them. And then she goes up to them, and the moment, I believe, of her conversion is when she says, we know what Yahweh is doing. We know what your God is doing in this region. In fact, fear of him is spread among all of us. And she is, at that moment, turning. She's at that moment, changing her loyalty. She's at that moment saying, I believe in Yahweh. I am putting my trust in Yahweh, so much so that I'm asking you who are here to be his representative, will you save me when the people come to destroy this city? Because I know they're coming to destroy it. And these men say, if you will do what we ask you, we swear by the name of that God that you and your household will be protected. And sure enough, when the army came and they encircled the city and they marched around it and then eventually they blew their trumpets and all the walls fell down. They rushed in. They slaughtered everybody in the city except Rahab and her family. Just consider that for a moment. Um, Rahab and her family lived with the Jewish people in the wilderness as they wandered and then eventually as they took over the land for the rest of her life. In fact, we know that she married somebody who was a Jew because she is in Jesus' own lineage, his own line. This family, for for the rest of time, was woven into the very people of God. They would march with the Israelites, knowing that they were the only ones who had been spared. And their entire city, their entire nation, their entire culture, their entire race, as it were, utterly destroyed by the armies of God 
and yet they themselves are remnant, objects of his grace, foreigners brought in. They are going to be among the ones in Revelation 5 who are singing that song because the gospel goes forth to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It wasn't just for one group of people. In fact, what you have to understand is that these stories are meant to remind us not just of the glory of the kingship of the rule of Christ, but also his mercy in extending his grace to people who are outside of that covenant originally. Rahab's a wonderful example of that. And so what you have is the the rule of Christ seen over this political and religious area. Jericho is a city that was named after the moon god. And so not only was he defeating the moon god and the Egyptian gods, but he is also showing his power over those nations and his willingness to save a remnant. There's a second point, though, too, I want you to see, that Christ rules over what is personal. And he gets into some very personal examples here. Uh, individuals. Now we're not just talking about nations, we're talking about individuals. And he gives uh, a list. So you've got Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Those are the four. And then he adds David and Samuel and the prophets kind of at the end. But, but those first four, those first four are what we call judges. Now I want you to understand a little bit about why these people were chosen, because they are meant to be, again, objects of faith, not objects of morality. One of the things that can happen uh, quite often is when you're preaching through a book of the Bible and you get a list like this of individuals, it's tempting sometimes to to take them and to do a little character study of each of these people and, and to try to then figure out what their virtues were and encourage everybody in the church to model their lives after these virtues and then what their vices were and like warn us against their vices. That's not the purpose of the author here. That's not what the author is doing. The author is not telling you to compare yourself with the life of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. What he's saying is that each of these individuals modeled faith, and that faith had the same effect as earlier. It was used to conquer nations and false gods, but it was really used to bring glory to the one true living God. So let's begin with Gideon. Gideon was not really a brave man at the beginning. Gideon wasn't really a model of faith. You know the story with Gideon, don't you? God calls Gideon and he says, I I want you to be the one who who overthrows the the Midianites and I want you to tear down the Ashtaroth and tear down the the Baals that are there, all the false gods, and I want you to do this for my glory. And and, and he says, I'm going to be with you, Gideon, and Gideon's like, "Ah, I'm not really sure. And, and so, not as an act of faith, I think, but actually as an act of lack of faith, he, he says, okay, I'm going to put out this fleece, this sort of uh, lambskin rug, and in the morning, I want that fleece to be soaked with dew, but all the ground around it to be dry. Then I'll know you're with me. And God does that. He wakes up the next morning, takes the fleece, wrings it out, has a cup full of water, and Gideon, in his great faith, says, okay, tomorrow morning... I want the ground to be wet all around it and the fleece to be dry. And sure enough, what happened? Exactly as he asked. And later on, you'll see that that God continually says to him, listen, if you're afraid and you don't think you can do this, you can grab your servant with you and go down and obey me if you're afraid. And every time he does that, every time he models the fact that he is not a man of great faith. However, Gideon has enough faith. (laughs) Gideon does at one point turn. He does put his trust in God. He does actually act even if it's a weak faith, even if it's a faith mixed with fear, even if it's a doubting faith. It's not even the quality of faith that's the focus here. Because Gideon does go up and he tears down the Baals. He tears down these places where people would go to to worship the false gods. 
Now, he does it at night. (laughs) He does it in fear, but he still does it. He acts in obedience to God, and in that, God shows his power over the nations. He shows his power over the false gods, because later on, Gideon goes, and he rustles up an army, and this army began with 32,000 men, and God says, I want you to bring the army down to a small enough number that when you defeat them, you know it's me. And so with 32,000 men, he says, okay, if any of you are afraid and you don't want to fight, you can go home. And out of 32,000 men, guess how many he lost? 22,000. That's not a good turnout. I mean, he might be rethinking his strategy. <laughs> he just lost two-thirds of his army. He's down to 10,000. And then God says, listen, I want you to take them all down to the brook, and I want you to give them water. And, and here's what I want you to do. Mark out the ones who put their face down in the water and lick it up like a dog versus those who crouch down and they scoop it up with their hands. And what God says is, I want you to take all those people that literally went down and stuck their face in the water and drank like a dog, that's going to be your army. Uh, these weren't like the, the best soldiers. And this, this wasn't the cream of the crop, okay? And there was only 300 of them. And so now you're down to just 300 people, and God gives them a special way. He doesn't even use weapons. He says, I want you to take these torches and take these pots, and I want you to yell, and I want you to break the pots. And then what God does is he says, even though you've got this weak little army, I'm not even going to use that army primarily to be the destruction because I'm going to cause so much confusion within that camp. They're going to kill each other, and then you can wipe out the rest easily. God shows his power through even the weak faith of Gideon. And Gideon, again, was not a good man. We'll see that because when he wraps up his life, he doesn't do it in the most virtuous way. But for the sake of time, we've got to move on to the next. It's Barak. Barak, again, was called out by the judge of the day. The judge in Israel at that day was a woman named Deborah. Deborah would sit in a particular place under a particular tree, and she would judge the people. God raised her up to be a judge of the nation. Just like he rose up uh, Samson and Jephthah and Gideon and all the other judges, Ehud, you know the stories from the book of Judges. And she was a ruler in in Israel. She ruled over the people. She spoke for God. She was his his prophet. She was his mouthpiece. And because she spoke with the authority and the word of God, she commanded Barak to come and to meet with her so that she could give him a responsibility, which was to go and overthrow the nation of Midian that had been oppressing the people. And Barak, again, was not an example of strong faith. He says, well, I'll go, but only if you come with me. You know, it's like being sent to school to do something. You're like, okay, I'm only going to go as long as my mom comes with me. He he wasn't a a model of of faith and strength. In fact, he was in some ways much a model of weakness. But she says, fine, I'll go with you. And and both of them then go. And and together they're able to, to fight against the Midianites and to destroy them. But she says this, it's so great. She goes, fine, you're going to go, you're going to fight, I'll come with you. But maybe as a consequence of that lack of faith, she says all the glory is going to go to a woman. And in those days, that was really hard for men to take. Maybe it's still hard for men to take. But she says all the glory is going to go to a woman. And after the army's defeated, there's the commander who has left, his name is Sisera. And Sisera is running away, and he is being pursued by Barak. And he comes into the tent of a woman named Jael. And Jael welcomes him in, and he, she knows what he's doing, that he's running away. She knows that he's the last one, and she welcomes him in, and she gives him something to drink, and she kind of lets him rest right there in her tent. And then when he's fast asleep of exhaustion, she takes a tent peg and a mallet, and she lays it just perfectly on top of his temple as he's lying there on the side. 
And then she takes that mallet and she drives the tent peg stake through his head. Now, we don't have a flannel graph about that in Sunday school. Somebody needs to do that. It's, it's, it's like an additional kit. It's like an add-on kit that you could buy. The really cool story. And so by the time Barak arrives, he's, she says, who are you looking for? He tells her, she's like, oh yeah, come in here, I'll show you. He's right here. And there he was. And what's so amazing is that the people then, they sing this song. Deborah sings this song the glory of God for what he has done in delivering the people. And there's a whole section there that praises Jael, calls her most blessed among women. So in this case, you've got a deliverer. This is Barak, but again, a man of, of weak faith. And then it moves on to the third one who you probably know very well, and that's Samson. And Samson in Judges 13 to 16, he was the one who God used to overthrow the Philistines and, the, and even the god Dagon. But Samson, again, was not a man of strong faith. In fact, if you were to look at him, you were to say he really only demonstrated this sort of mustard seed of faith, and that was really more towards the end of his life. The Holy Spirit would come upon him in power, and he would go and he would overthrow the Philistines, but he was almost always doing it for his own glory. He was doing it out of revenge. He was doing it out of anger. He was doing it because he had gotten tricked by one of the many women that he had fallen in love with. He was an egomaniac womanizer. What he showed at the end of his life was faith where he begged God to one more time give him back his strength so that he could die in a mass murder-suicide. I mean, this is the, the real nature of these people, and yet here they are in this hall of faith, as it is called. Why? Because God is going to regenerate them and use them, and they're going to model that faith, not so that we can say, I want to be just like them but because we want to say praise be to God that he would use someone like them. And the last one, Jephthah, he's another one of the judges. You probably know the story about him as well. He reluctantly goes to fight. Uh, he had been discarded by his family. He was the son of a prostitute before his mother had legitimate children. And the legitimate children that came afterwards, they, they drove him out of the home. And it wasn't until they were in dire need that they reach out to him, and they find him along with, the text tells us in the book of Judges, a bunch of very unsavory characters. He had, he had fallen into a really bad gang. And so here comes Jephthah with his gang of evildoers, and they're used by God once again to overthrow the domineering nation that had put the people under oppression. In this case, he was the one who came in to destroy the Ammonites. The Ammonites and the Moabites, remember, they, they came from the daughters of Lot. The older daughter and the younger daughter, they both get their father drunk and essentially rape him in order to have children because their husbands died when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And from the younger one came this nation of Ammon, and that had been oppressing the people of, of Israel. And so he brings in Jephthah in order to deliver them. And one of the things Jephthah does, not to model his faith, but to actually again show the weakness of it, he says to God, if you will give me victory over this nation, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes running out of my tent to greet me. And some of you know the tragic end of that story. He goes home victorious. And what happens? His little daughter, his only child, runs out to greet him, and he's heartbroken. When you go back and you look at how these men ended, it's not necessarily noble. Gideon, filled with pride at the end, has so many wives and so many concubines that he has 70 sons. 
that end up sharing the kingdom. He takes all of the gold from the men who had captured the city and he turns it into a golden ephod. And what happens is the people then fall down and worship that and begin their cultic rituals of immorality in front of it. Barak, again, doesn't end well either. He, he doesn't show himself as being somebody who's got a deep faith. In fact, he drags his feet quite a bit. He's very slow to obey. Samson dies in mass murder, suicide. Jephthah kills not only his own daughter and sacrifices her as a burnt offering, but later, in a reaction to another tribe that was angry with him, killed 42,000 of his own people. If you think that these are moral examples that you're supposed to live up to because they're in the hall of faith, and I'm afraid you misunderstand the purpose of the author. Instead, what they are is an example of how God in His mercy can grant faith to even people who are anything but worth emulating. The last two are, are a little easier to understand, David and Samuel. David, as you know, was also a man who was after God's own heart, and he was always there to tear down the idols and to destroy anything in the land that was against the, 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 the worship of the one true living God. God used him to basically conquer the nations and the enemies around him. You see, he's weaving together his power over the political with his power to work through the personal, the individual. Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the real prophets. He's the one who anointed David. He's the one who saw him come to power. And yet both David and Samuel as well had areas in their life that weren't very noble. David, as you know, was enshrined in the Scriptures forever because of his adultery with Bathsheba and then his murder of her husband. Samuel himself comes to the end of his life and his own children had rejected the Lord and were evil men. But we go back to the same theme over and over again. It is the God of the universe. It is the king who rules over everything, who rules through the political realm and through the personal. Notice what they accomplished. In fact, from verses 33 to 35, you see a summary of all of this. This, again, is the way that the author is building his argument. If this was to be read or to be preached, this would be sort of the crescendo. He's like saying to them, I don't have time to go in and tell you about all of this. And the people are responding by saying, no, we want to be reminded. We want to be told. They grew up on these stories. These were the Jews who had been converted, remember? They want to hear these stories. They want to be reminded of the great things that these heroes had done. But he summarizes it for them. All of the people that I just mentioned to you are the ones who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. It was the judges who conquered kingdoms. It was David who enforced justice. Even in this world, there were those who were obtaining the promises. Daniel, Samson, David stopped the mouths of lions. The fire was quenched by people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the furnace, but the Lord was with them. David, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah all escaped the sword. Samson was made strong, even though he was a regular man by the power of the Holy Spirit. People like Gideon were able to defeat the armies of Midian with only a small number of people because they became mighty in war. And all the judges and all the kings were known for putting armies to flight. The resurrection of the dead that some of these widows received, both Elijah and Elisha, some of their most well-known miracles were taking people who were dead, sons of widows, and bringing them back to life. 
But the author says, these were resurrections, yes. But they were resurrections that looked forward to the great and ultimate resurrection. They did receive their dead back, and they were resurrected. But there is a greater resurrection, a greater life that he is going to offer through the gospel, and we'll see that in a moment. So Christ rules over what is political, over what is religious, over the gods of the world. He rules over what is personal, individuals, as they work to accomplish his purposes, as they are able to overcome empires and execution and weakness and death. But he also, thirdly, works through what is promised. We see this in verses 35b all the way through verse 40. And what I'd like you to see is there are a couple of places where the Scripture says that or so that. In verse 35, the second part of that verse, please notice, where it says, so that they might rise again to a better life. And then in verse 40, that or so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These are purpose clauses. So when the author is writing this, he is summarizing the argument. Now, originally I thought, originally I thought, you know what, I'll do all of chapter 11 in one sermon. Um, We're now on sermon five. Now, it's not because... um, I just ran out of time studying because I was busy doing other things. It's because as I got into it, so many of these truths just were screaming out to be preached and taught and to be explained. But if I were to do this again now, I think I could go back and say just in in one message, this almost reads by itself like a sermon. Now that we know what these illustrations are really illustrating, it becomes very clear. And what began in verse 1 and 2 with a definition of faith is now wrapped up with the so that clauses in the second part of verse 35 and the end of verse 40. What is all of this pointing to? What does all of this mean? It all wraps up in what is promised. There is great hope in light of the temporal failure and suffering that you see in this world. Deliverance. Deliverance as demonstrated in some of these stories in the Scriptures, beloved, is the exception, not the rule. You have to understand that When he says to them, look, this is reality, when he talks about what some of these people endured, he is speaking that to these Jews who not only saw it in the past, but were experiencing it in the present. He says that others did not escape. Some were tortured. It's a word that means to be beaten, to be beaten to death. Some were beaten to death, refusing to accept release. Why? So that they might rise again to a better life. That's the purpose. That's the point. There's something so much better than what this life has to offer. There's something so much better that's in exchange. It's not just give up everything and and die broke. It's give up everything knowing that you will inherit eternal, everlasting riches. Some were beaten to death to receive a greater resurrection. Others were not killed, but they experienced the sufferings in verses 36 to 38. They were stoned like Zechariah, 2 Corinthians 24. They were sawn in two like Isaiah the prophet under the king Manasseh. They were killed by the sword as so many of them were. They were poorly clothed, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. They were homeless. They wandered around as people who had to go from city to city, escaping persecution and judgment. And it makes it look like they were the the dregs of society. It makes them look like they were the, the lowest of the low. And yet the author says that the irony of the situation is that they were the utter rejects of the world and at the same time people 
of whom the world wasn't worthy. Now, that, that, that changes your perspective, doesn't it? That, that completely flips the paradigm. These people, beaten to death, stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword, burned with fire, are these people who were going around from place to place trying to escape persecution, are these who were absolutely the lowest of the low in terms of what society thought of them, were really people that were so great in the eyes of God that the world wasn't worthy of them. In the eyes of God, in the eyes of King Jesus, they were more valuable, more important, more prestigious than any king in the earth at that time. You see, we talk about the fact that Jesus is the, the king and that he rules. He rules over his own promises, meaning that he will effect those in his own way, in his own time, and for his own purposes. The conclusion comes in verses 39 to 40, and this is what parallels most closely the opening of this chapter. Everything that is mentioned in this chapter, all of these people have been attested to by God. They have received his approval. They have received his commendation. Despite the fact that they were some pretty shady characters, I believe that every single one of them was regenerated. Every single one of them was a believer. Every single one of them has been, been saved by the blood of Christ. Even Gideon. Even Barak. Even Samson. Even Jephthah. David. Samuel. All the prophets. That every one of them is, is commended here by God. It's identified as those who have saving faith. And yet, they've got this saving faith, but they don't have the promise yet. You say, well, how is this possible? How is it possible that they have faith in God, they do these mighty works, they defeat armies, they overthrow nations, they destroy false gods, they bring people up from the dead, and yet they didn't receive the promise. Well, the answer comes to us in verses 39 and 40, so I want you to zero in on that in particular. Ultimately, it was God's plan to fulfill the promise, but to fulfill it in Christ, not in their lifetime. He says here in verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since. And here's the reason. It all boils down to this. Since. God had provided something better for us in order that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, should not be made complete. Let me explain what this means. They were commended for their faith, but they didn't receive the promise apart from us. Who's the us? Who's the us? The us, in the original, are the people receiving this letter. So, the author of the Hebrews is writing to a bunch of Jewish believers, likely living in Rome, who are undergoing persecution, and he says that these heroes of the faith, of the old covenant, didn't receive the promise because they were all waiting for us. And what marked them out were they're the ones that had seen the coming of the Messiah. They're the ones who had seen what all of this were pointing to. They were the ones who had seen that Jesus was the ultimate promise, the one in whom everybody ultimately had their faith. And what's so interesting is that we, 2,000 years later, can say the same thing. It's also because of us. We, too, are experiencing that, that same, fuller understanding of what the promise entailed. And we now know in more detail anything than what the ancients knew all the way back to Abel and Enoch and Noah. Remember we talked about them? 
more than any of the patriarchs knew, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even Levi, and then into Moses. Uh, we know more than any of these judges that are mentioned here, or the kings, or the prophets. We know more because more has been revealed. We know more because more of redemptive history has unfolded. In fact, we know more, and we are now complete in terms of understanding the nature of the promise than these heroes were that are mentioned in this book. That's why the author says to these Hebrew believers, God forbid that you would ever turn your back on that and go back to the old dead system. Now, one of the things that we need to talk about right now is what does that faith look like? I mean, what is the real nature of saving faith? And I want to get some help today from a book. In fact, it was probably one of the two books that has had the biggest impact on my life and ministry in the last three years. The first book would be The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, and the second book is called Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. And I know I've mentioned this book before, but one of the chapters that I find so helpful, especially in this study, was chapter four on faith and repentance. And the author says this, regeneration, this is when God gives you a new heart. He says, regeneration is inescapable or inseparable from its effects, and one of the effects is faith. He says that without regeneration, it is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. Now, the way we understand faith and repentance could be like this. Imagine, if you will, a building and a foundation. The foundation is what we would call the warrant for your faith. The foundation is built on the fact that the gospel has always been revealed to us in Scripture as something that is proclaimed universally. It is proclaimed to everyone. That's the first part of the foundation of real saving faith. The second part of the foundation is the absolute all-sufficiency of the sacrifice. Not only is this gospel proclaimed to everybody, but everybody who puts their faith in Christ is saved. Christ's sacrifice is all-sufficient. And then built on that foundation, you've got this building and the building itself is made up of knowledge and of conviction and of trust. Knowledge is the simple fact that you know the gospel. You know the very meaning of what Jesus said when he tells us that he was sent in order that he might die to make a way for you to be saved because his righteousness would be imputed to you and your sin imputed to him. Next comes the conviction. You have to actually believe that. You have to actually say, not only do I understand it in my mind, but I, I believe it. Uh, the reformers would use the term to ascend to it. That it is something that I have taken in and genuinely believe and I'm convicted about. And then thirdly is trust. You demonstrate that you know it because it becomes a conviction, and the conviction demonstrates itself in trust. So the foundation, the universal call to repentance and faith, based on the all-sufficient work of Christ, and then built upon that, the knowledge, the conviction, and the trust. So when I talk to you this morning, and I say, if you're not a Christian, this is the essence of the gospel, that is what I mean 
That is the nature of the gospel. If you were to say to me, and rightfully so, okay, I believe that, but what do I do? My answer would be that it's less about what you do and more about what God's already done in you if you believe. Because if you genuinely believe, then you've been regenerated. And because you've been regenerated, as the author said there, uh, you are spiritually and morally incapable of not repenting and believing. Because part of regeneration is that God also gives you faith as a gift. And you yourself exercise that faith. That is on you. You do that. That is a part you play, yes. But it is a faith that you exercise because he's given it to you and he's given you a new heart to believe. And then people say, well, what about repentance? And I believe that Murray is right. I would certainly say it the same way, that it's really not an argument we need to have because you can't have genuine repentance without saving faith, and you can't have saving faith without genuine repentance. The two go together. But repentance, as it were, is not just something you do to merit favor with God. Repentance is something you do because it shows you've been changed from the inside, and your radically perverted understanding of the world is turned around, and everything that you used to believe about God and yourself and sin and righteousness is suddenly made right. And now you can repent in joy because you understand who God is in His sovereignty and holiness. Because you understand that sin has separated you eternally from Him and you fall under His righteous wrath. And then you see yourself as being someone who is in need of a Savior and the righteousness, not something you can earn, but something given to you as a gift from Him. You see, faith and repentance go together. They're based on regeneration and that regeneration is a work of God. So if you're not a Christian here today, I would call you to that. I would issue that call to repent, that call to believe because of the sufficiency of Christ and because of his decree that we do it. And if you are a Christian today, may you be built up in your faith and encouraged not to go out and be like the people mentioned in this chapter, but instead to be reminded that even the people in this chapter are able to demonstrate saving faith because of the regeneration that was given to them by the Holy Spirit. And that demonstrates the power and the rule of King Jesus over every political and religious sphere, over every single individual purpose and person, and over every single promise that he has made, because he will fulfill it in his time, in his way, and to perfection. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just ask that you would take these truths and that you would apply them to us in a way that causes us to grow in our faith. We thank you for the work of regeneration that only you can do, and for what results for the faith and for the repentance. And as you've instructed us to do, I ask that this gospel, as it is preached this morning, would fall on ears of those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world to respond with the gift of faith that you have given them. We give you great praise today that that message is going forth clearly in countries like Uganda and Peru and Argentina and Paraguay. We thank you for the privilege that we have in sharing in that glorious proclamation of the gospel with people who so faithfully take it around the world. Lord, I ask even today that you would reinforce in our own minds the glorious gospel as rescued this month over 500 years ago when brave and faithful men were willing to take your word and proclaim it to people and declare to them that there is no mediator except Christ between God and man. 
and to put their faith wholly in Him to accomplish everything that He has purposed. Lord, we ask that you would do this here and for your own glory. In your name we pray. Amen.